goal on the ERLC podcast is to help you think biblically about today's cultural issues. As we discuss important topics that matter to Southern Baptists, you might have additional questions. We'd love to hear from you. Please email us at erlcpodcast at erlc.com and let us know how you're processing the conversations featured on the podcast. And just a reminder, we want to make sure you're kept up to date about the important work the ERLC is doing on behalf of Southern Baptists. The best way to do that is by joining us at erlc.com backslash updates. Signing up for email updates allows you to hear directly from us about our work and the ways we're serving you on the issues that matter most to Southern Baptists. Become an email subscriber at erlc.com backslash updates. That's erlc.com backslash updates. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. What? What did I say? (laughs) Can that be the opening explainer? We have an explainer about this. (laughs) It's amazing. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC on behalf of Southern Baptists. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and joining me this week, as I told y'all, is my new regular co-host, unofficially, but I'm so (laughs) glad that you're here, Hannah Daniel. Hey, Lindsay. Good to be with you. I'm glad you're back. Thanks for making time in the midst of a busy week, and we'll talk about why that week has been busy. But I hope, like we talked about last week, that you've been getting your fair share of Diet Coke with lime. Oh, for sure. I had one yesterday, and it was um, a real treat. I had to take my mom to a procedure. Anyway, she couldn't, like, it was the night before was the last time that she could eat or drink. And the whole time, she was like, I cannot wait to have a Diet Coke. And so on our way home, we stopped by Sonic at night, and she got two large coffees and a Diet Coke. Like, good grief. Didn't you eat something first? (laughs) She's like, nope. (laughs) I love Sonic, and we don't have them here. And I, especially in the summers, I just, I miss going to Sonic and getting like a strawberry limeade or, Mm -hmm. I don't know, just, it feels like summer to me. Yep. When I don't know what to do with my kids because the weather is crazy or uh, they're just especially whiny, I load them in the car and all I can think to do is go to Sonic. And in fact, we did it yesterday because I needed them to not get dirty so we couldn't really play outside. So we got in the car and we went to Sonic and we got a pretzel. Sometimes we'll get slushies, but that's a whole nother situation too. So We got pretzels, I got a Coke, and life was good. And we used up about 30 minutes of time. (laughs) Amazing. Yes. So we're going to pretend like we have our Diet Coke and our pretzels with us while we talk about the busy week that has been this week. And what I want to start off talking about is out of Tennessee, Governor Bill Lee uh, has made a proposal, an order of protection proposal, as it relates to gun violence. And our president, Brent Leatherwood, whose children attend Covenant School, sent a letter to the Tennessee General Assembly in support of this order of protection proposal. In addition, separately, Randy Davis, the president of the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board, together with a group of some other pastors, sent their own letter to the Tennessee Assembly in support of the same proposal. So it's important, and it's something that Southern Baptists and Tennessee Baptists have spoken out regarding. So we just want to tell you a little bit about it here at the beginning of the podcast. So Governor Lee's proposal is 
fundamentally about providing law enforcement officers with the tools necessary to protect citizens while upholding the rights of Tennesseans to exercise their constitutional rights. And I'm quoting this from our explainer that we just posted, and of course, we will link to it in the show notes. This particular order is linked to an existing law, an order of protection for domestic violence. And what sets this order apart from a red flag law, so you might have heard about other states that have red flag laws, actually 19 states have them, This is different. So first, the order of protection that Governor Lee is proposing only allows law enforcement officers to make the official request to the courts. So some red flag laws allow multiple people like medical professionals, family members, educators, or others to file a petition. But this has to go through law enforcement. In addition, Governor Lee's proposal allows for a structured procedure to meet all the demands of due process. So you cannot remove someone's weapons without first going through due process. So the process goes like this. You have to get law enforcement involved upon an official report that a person is a danger to themselves or others. Law enforcement would conduct an investigation. If they deem that there's sufficient evidence for an individual to meet this evidence standard, then law enforcement would file a petition to the court. And once that petition is filed, the court has an extensive process. That includes things like setting a hearing date, notifying the individual, having a homicide slash suicide assessment conducted by medical professionals. The court process also requires that both sides have legal representation. So there is a very high bar for this process to begin, and individuals are entitled to full due process. So they can challenge the claims of the court if they believe that they are in error. And then the process goes on from there. So say the court grants this order protection, the person's firearms may be removed for up to 180 days. The judge would also be required to consider alternatives before issuing the order. And the firearms have to be surrendered to a third party or to law enforcement. The individual can petition to have the firearms returned. And there are also penalties for false reports. So this is a very thorough process. Lots of uh, procedure to go through so that a person's constitutional rights can be protected and upheld. Yeah, and, you know, this is an issue that that Southern Baptists have spoken to before. Um, In 2018, the messengers at the annual meeting passed a resolution called On Gun Violence and Mass Shootings. Then that was reaffirmed in a resolution last year on the Imago Day. And um, these resolutions affirmed the rights of gun owners, and they also called on our lawmakers to take concrete steps toward solutions that uphold the dignity and value of every human life and to minimize the threat of gun violence throughout our society. And as you mentioned, Randy Davis, president of the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board, you know, he commented in an article on this, this is personal for me. I am a gun owner and I strongly support the Second Amendment. However, I also have a daughter who is a school teacher. She loves the children she teaches. She and her students, like all teachers and students, deserve a safe environment in which to teach and learn. Measures must be taken to address the mental health side of gun violence, especially as it pertains to mass shootings and the unnecessary and deeply unfortunate deaths of innocent people, such as nine-year-old children. You know, and this really aligns with um, what our president, Brent Leatherwood, has explained even in his own letter, he argues that the same motivation that drives us to protect the preborn 
is also what urges us to protect vulnerable children from the violence of mass shootings. It really is our belief that all people are made in the image of God. They hold immeasurable worth and dignity and value, and we should take the steps that we can to protect life. Like you mentioned, Hannah, regarding Brent's comments, this is an issue that is very much within the portfolio of what Southern Baptists have entrusted us with as the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. This is a it's a human dignity issue. Uh, we care about the safety of our citizens. We care about the well-being of those with uh, mental health issues and those that they may threaten to harm. And we will continue to watch and hope that the Tennessee legislature will take action on this proposal. And of course, to you listeners, we will keep you updated about any movement on this. Hannah, I mentioned it's been a busy week for you. That's one of the reasons. Another reason is because of the Supreme Court. There were some important oral arguments for cases that we are watching. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about the latest case? Right. On Tuesday this week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case called Groff v. DeJoy. And this is is a case about a uh, religious postal worker. So in the case, Gerald Groff is a Christian who began working as a United States Postal Service carrier back in 2012. And he is compelled by his religious beliefs to observe the Sunday Sabbath. Um, And you would think, okay, this wouldn't be a problem. He's working for the post office. But the post office began delivering packages on Sunday for Amazon. And so when that happened, Groff tried to take extra shifts on weekdays and holidays, um, tried to make some arrangements to accommodate him to be able to not work on the Sabbath. And initially, the Postal Service was granting him those accommodations, but then changed its mind and began scheduling him for Sunday work. So eventually, he refused to violate his beliefs and faced termination until he ultimately resigned in 2019. And so as we've discussed on here before, this case is really looking at to what extent do employers have to try to accommodate their religious employees? And, you know, this is a case that is important for us as Southern Baptists because we believe that we cannot separate our vocation from our beliefs. These religious accommodations are especially important for people of minority religions whose accommodations that they might need are a little more unusual than they would be for those of us in a majority religion here in the United States. And so oral arguments happened in this case on Tuesday. And it was really interesting to listen in because you could tell that the justices were trying to figure out what a new standard for this should be. Nobody seemed super happy with the way that things are now, but there was a lot of back and forth about what a new standard might should look like. And it was really interesting at one point, the solicitor general who was arguing for um, the government, she was trying to say, oh, you know, things really aren't that bad right now. You know, religious people are, are generally able to do what they need to do and, and things aren't, you know, they're, they're really not that bad. And Justice Alito stopped her and picked up a stack of amicus briefs, which as we've mentioned before, are briefs filed by groups like ours who have an interest in the case. And um, he starts flipping through these briefs and says, well, then why do we have input from pretty much every single religious group in the United States saying the current standard isn't working. He said, you know, we have everybody from Hindus and Muslims and Jews and Christians. Everybody is saying this isn't working as it is right now. So it was really, um, really cool to see 
even the briefs that we submitted having an impact in the case and being able to stand along with people of, of other faiths and trying to push for better accommodations for religious employees in the workplace. And as we've expressed a similar sentiment in other cases, uh, a Christian, their faith does not stop when they walk through that workplace door or anyone of any faith. Their practice does not stop when they walk through that workplace door. And so, as you mentioned, we were encouraged by Justice Alito's comments and are hoping for the best outcome possible in this case. And a ruling will is expected to come in June. Is that correct, Hannah? Yeah, that's most likely. It'll come um, before they leave for the summer, which uh, normally it'll be probably towards the end of June. I also have to pick on you a minute, well, a second, because uh, when you were explaining one part of this, your Southern Roots came out and you said, might should. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. He and I laughed. Don't. Might should. I love it. I say that frequently too, but my roots are not really Southern. They're just pretend Southern. So we've heard uh, about the religious postal worker case. Another big one that is at the Supreme Court is the abortion pill case. So why don't you update us on the latest goings on there? Right. So when we talked last week, basically where things were was that the Fifth Circuit had ruled saying that while the case is ongoing, Mifepristone should remain available, which Mifepristone is one of the two chemical abortion drugs and they ruled that Mifepristone should remain available, but they put back in place those important safety precautions that we talked about. Things like in-person medical visits, not mailing the abortion drug, and limiting its use to the first seven weeks of pregnancy. And those changes were set to go in place last Friday. And um, the government then appealed that ruling to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, we need a few days to uh, review this, to get up to speed with what's going on, to allow the parties to submit briefs. And so they basically paused that ruling to today, Friday the 21st. And so here we are. And what basically is, is going to happen is that at midnight tonight, if the Supreme Court did nothing, the Fifth Circuit's ruling would go into place. The, those precautions would be reinstated. Um, but we expect the Supreme Court to weigh in at some point today. And there's kind of, I think, three different ways that they could rule. And it's important to note, too, this is not a ruling on the merits of the case. The case is, is actually going to be argued at the Fifth Circuit in a couple of weeks in May on the actual FDA approval, on the safety precautions, all of those things. This is all about the short-term availability of Mifepristone while the case continues. So tonight, the Supreme Court could issue kind of like one of, of three rulings. One, they could say Mifepristone is going to remain completely available, no safety precautions in place, basically just maintaining the status quo before this litigation started. Two, they could say Mifepristone is going to remain available, but we are going to put back these safety precautions in, kind of like the Fifth Circuit said. Or they could say, nope, we think Mifepristone needs to completely come off the market as Judge Kaczmarek in Texas said. So we're waiting to see what the Supreme Court is going to rule. And um, it definitely will be a, a good indicator of how they might rule on this later down the road when they likely hear the case on the merits in the future. So it's, a, it's an important ruling, one that we're going to be watching closely. As we know, over half of abortions in the United States come at the hands of this drug. And so even if this ruling is short-term, 
it still will have a massive impact on life, on the health and safety of women. So it's, it's an important ruling that we are going to be watching really closely. I just want to emphasize what you said there at the end, that of course we want the abortion pill off the market because we care about pre-born lives. We want to see babies in the womb be given the chance at life because they have an inherent right to life just by virtue of being humans creating God's image. We also care about the health and safety and well-being of women. These abortion pills are not safe. In your explainer, Hannah, that you wrote for us, which we will link to, I think it was one in five women experienced complications from taking this pill. And so those are bad statistics. Women experience suffering from taking this. And so it's physical suffering, but also mental, emotional suffering. So we want to see preborn babies protected. We want to see women protected. We want to see human life protected all around. Absolutely. And I think you touched on one thing there, and it's that so many women, when they're taking these drugs, are at home alone. It means they're, A, often far from medical care where they could get help if they are experiencing these medical complications. But as you were talking about, the mental impact and emotional and spiritual impact of going through this, often in secret, the amount of shame and hurt and, and all of that can really, I think it, it's allowed to fester when it's done in secret and at home where they're not able to get the support that they need in that time. So you mentioned this, we're recording on Friday, April 21st. At the time this podcast drops, what we've just said might be out of date. So we will keep you up to date on our social media channels. You can look on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. That's the best place to check for ongoing news about the abortion pill at the Supreme Court. Just to add some levity, Hannah, as we're closing out here, speaking of socials, I saw on your social media account that you went and saw Les Mis last night. Was it last night or sometime? I don't know the timing of it, but you saw that. How was it? Was it your first time seeing it? What is your favorite Broadway play or musical? Oh, that's such a good question. I love Broadway musicals. I was talking about this with our coworker, Elizabeth Bristow, and I was telling her that if I could be talented in ways that I'm not and like live a completely different life, I would be a Broadway performer. I just, I love it so much. And um, this was my first time seeing Les Mis and it was just spectacular. It's such a beautiful story and the cast was incredibly talented. And there just were, were so many gospel parallels that I was not anticipating. Just this beautiful story of forgiveness and redemption and a picture of grace versus law. And it just was, was beautiful. I cried a couple of times. It was, it was just amazing. It might be my my favorite. It's definitely up there. I've always loved um, Hamilton as well. Mm -hmm. I guess not always. It's still somewhat recent. Relatively but, new, yeah. Um, it's a favorite of mine that I've gotten to see. And, and Phantom of the Opera is such a classic too. It just closed on, on Broadway. But those are maybe my, my top three. But they're just so beautiful and inspirational and, and all of those things in their own ways. Uh, I have Les Mis on audiobook, I guess, on hold, because I've never read it. I think it's a tome. I think it's pretty big. 
I'm not sure if I'll be able to get through it, but we'll see eventually. Also, it's been a while since I've sung on this podcast. On my own, pretending he's beside me. Yes, I love Les Mis. So um, my husband is horrified because when I was younger, my very first Broadway play I saw was Cats. And my husband hates Cats. Sorry, Chelsea. <laughs> I'm a co-worker. Shout out to Lionel. Uh, so I loved Cats, but I never saw the movie. I heard it was terrible. I think Wicked is one of my favorites. I've seen it multiple times. And I don't know. I've seen Phantom and Les Mis. Those were beautiful. One called Miss Saigon that was also really good. So yes, I love Broadway plays as well. And I hope to go to more. Oh, how could I forget? For a Christmas present, my husband took me to see Lion King when it was here. I've heard so many great things. It was amazing. I was sitting next to this guy. Well, I was sitting next to my husband, obviously. But then there was this guy, <laughs> this other guy next to us. And I was like, oh, I bet you never watched Lion King uh, wearing a mask before because you still had to wear masks. And uh, he was like, no. Well, come to find out at the very end, he was like next up to be one of the hyenas. So of course he had watched Lion King <laughs> with a mask on over and over and over again. So he was just like kind to, to just go along with the silly things that I say sometimes to make conversations with people. But it was, I highly recommend Lion King if you haven't been to see it. It's actually coming to um, the Kennedy Center this summer. So I may, may try to see it. It's wonderful. So go see it. And every all the listeners out there, go see a Broadway play sometime soon because it's a great way to just enjoy the gift of creativity that the Lord has given to people. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production is provided by Owens Productions. It is edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.